Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and oh boy, Matt, I got a new job. You got a new job? Uh, Are you no longer a scholar, minister, and writer living in Pennsylvania? (laughs) No, I still do those things. Uh, But now I have a church that employs me to also do those things. I'm now the minister of Overberg Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Awesome. How's it going? Uh, this is day three, and I'm thoroughly overwhelmed. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. I believe it. Well, uh, welcome to the fray, and we'll look forward to hearing more about how that goes. But but today, today, Adam, is opening day of Major League Baseball. And I, I look forward to this day so much. I, I know this is not exactly your thing, Adam, but but don't cry. There's, there's no crying in baseball. Instead, today... We're celebrating with our own cinematic tribute with our guest, Catherine Reckless. We're talking about 1992's classic film, A League of Their Own. In our second segment today, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up specific ideas about what you might do with A League of Their Own for this upcoming Sunday, which will be the fifth Sunday in Lent, year C, April 7th. And then finally, in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. But before we get too far, let me introduce friend of the show, Catherine Reckless. Catherine teaches at Fordham University and is the co-director of the Institute for Art, Religion, and Social Justice. She's also the media columnist at the Christian Century. Last time Catherine was on, we talked about double indemnity. And this week, we take a turn from the urban to the rural to the heartland of America to talk about a league of their own. Catherine, thanks for being here. Thanks, Matt and Adam. This is my greatest honor. (laughs) <laughs> so adam and Catherine, we are talking about penny marshall's a league of their own which for my money is the kind of the closing act of this era of great baseball movies it's starting with the natural in 1984 running through field of dreams and major league and bull durham and now this which gets in just before the 1994 baseball strike and a lot of goodwill flushed down the toilet but a league of their own is different than the others of course It's based on real history, which is the history of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, a league formed during the last years of World War II amid fears that the large number of men deployed overseas would threaten the operations of Major League Baseball itself. And so a league of their own finds us in the first year of this new league with Gina Davis and Lori Petty as sisters Dottie and Kit, who join the roster of the Rockford Peaches, alongside Madonna, Rosie O'Donnell, and a host of other characters including their drunk, aging superstar of a coach, Jimmy Dugan, played by Tom Hanks. This movie killed in the summer box office of 1992, and I'm, I'm sure I saw it then, and I'm not sure when I've seen it since until yesterday, but it, it really held up for me, and I'm excited to dig into it with you all. Catherine, kick us off. What makes A League of Their Own stick around, and how can it help us think about theology and the church and the world? So I think um, compared to your overwhelming love and knowledge of baseball and baseball movies. I am definitely out of my league in that regard. But I, um, so I, I don't think I saw this movie in the theater. I can't remember, 
but I definitely saw it on, I'm sure, VHS um, shortly after it was released. And I remember seeing it multiple times as like a middle schooler or early high schooler. Um, I cannot say that I am an aficionado of the sports movie genre, though. I mean, I've seen a fair share of them. And when I saw this, I definitely didn't think of it. It was as a sports movie so much. I remember it as a young teenager. It was the like budding feminist sensibilities, the like woes and struggles of young white women in the era of patriarchy. I'm sure that was the part that was speaking to me. Though watching it again, I had really simultaneously mixed reactions of, wow, like 1992 (laughs) was so weird. Like, and, and like, wow, my life in my lifetime, like our, our like general cultural sensibilities have really changed because this movie is really dated in certain ways. And yeah, like emotionally, it also still held up. Like I was still kind of totally caught up in the, um, kind of movement, emotional and plot movement of the movie. Um, but so I was thinking, okay, what does it feel like since the gender politics actually feel really weird to me watching it now in 2018. Yeah, yeah, they totally Um, So yeah, we can talk about that. But then I thought, well, what what also makes this movie still so interesting is that it is clearly playing by like all the sports book, like the sports book genre, though you can tell me where I'm right or wrong about that. But like that, the general like underdog, fighting it out, the battles, the ups and downs, the trials on and perseverance, and then the climax to the big game. Um, except it kind of also turns all of those on their head because what are these women actually playing for? Right? Like they are, their league, it does kind of survive, but not for very long. It's completely written out of history. It's barely remembered. Um, and so it has this weird, like really, really ratchets up that central sports movie question. You know, what are sports about, right? Is it fame? Is it glory? No, it's the love of the game. And it just, it just like makes that um, so transparent because there's really nothing else it can be for most of these women. So those are my first thoughts. So I do want you to help me think about like what exactly is up with Dottie because she's our main character and like what's, what's up with the weird, the whole movie is like a flashback through Dottie's own vexed relationship to this period of her life. Um, so that's, yeah, you'll tell me to figure out what's going on. I think you're right. I think that the central figure of Dottie is such an interesting cipher for the rest of the movie, right? Because on the one hand, she's, uh, a, an, a kind of an unwilling participant. She's, she, she goes to try out because her, her younger sister really wants to try out. So in, in many ways, this is also a sort of sibling movie in, and, mm-hmm. and, and I think the heart of that heart of the relationship uh, between Dottie and Kit is the the central relationship that moves plot right. And in in to your point about 1992 being really weird. On the one hand, Penny Marshall, who is has just come off making Big, which is a monster monster hit, has all of this cachet and makes a movie about women baseball players because she herself is a baseball fan and she herself has now the the sort of juice in Hollywood to make a movie that she wants. And then she gathers all of these really famous people. Gina Davis point in her career is just, um, is a superstar and an A-lister. Madonna is showing up in this movie. Um, and, and she tells a story about baseball ostensibly, but I don't understand Gina Davis's 
character because she seems like she wants to participate. She wants it to succeed. And then her husband comes back and she's like, okay, I guess I'm going to leave. And she's going to return back into this, these social norms that always felt to her a little bit more familiar and a little bit more comfortable than having to be the woman in the skirt playing baseball in front of men. And now there are moments where she seems to get caught up in trying to win for the love of the game. But at no point do I feel like she's the type of person who would have done this without her sister's pulling. And at that at that moment, like I, like you, I'm sort of thinking this is beginning to divert from what are the typical sports movie tropes and the, and the, the motivations that the, the act or the, that the characters bring to why they want to win and why it's so important. And in some sports movies, it's, it's for history's sake. This is all of the sports movies about like race and, and reconciliation, right? They're it's like the first all black basketball team to win a championship. Like, okay, that's your movie. And it's, um, in other ways, it's like the triumph of one individual soul over like their circumstance. In this, I was like you, not, I couldn't quite figure out what the motivation was for everything. Matt, how about you? Was, was there a moment where you figured it out and thought, oh, okay, this is why they keep playing baseball? I mean, I, I think here's my take on it is like this, that I, I think you're, you're right that this movie does conform to some of the traditional sports movie genre types. Obviously, it it picks up some of those key moments, especially at the end when we're kind of in the last out of the World Series, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I also think that in some ways it it's it's pushing in ways that you've you've all already identified. And what what strikes me is that the these the people on this team are playing to win to some extent, but really the story is about them finding a place finding a space of belonging uh that they, they are are finding people who um are are strangely attracted to this game or strangely attracted just to to athletics in a way that wasn't um normally acceptable in the the culture that they were coming from at the time and so we have this carved out space where they can kind of fully live into this thing that wasn't otherwise coded as normal or acceptable. So it feels like a film that's about belonging to me. And what is difficult about Gina Davis's character is that she's not really sure whether she belongs there and she never is. And so there's, there's places where it's, it, it, you know, she's good at the game. She can, she can do it. Uh, she enjoys things about it, but she also, she also belongs, in her own opinion, uh, in that place where, she, in Oregon, in that place where she came from. And so when her husband shows up, there is this tension of w- what, is, what is really home for me now in a way that was never a tension uh, for Kit, who fully understands from the beginning that this is an opportunity for her to go be in a place where she can be fully authentically herself. Yeah, no, that does make sense. I think um, two things that came to mind. So I was thinking about the, the so the whole movie is set up, right? It, it, we're in some kind of present with, with Dottie, their older woman. Her daughter has to like push her out the house to go to the National Baseball Hall of Fame 
to see an exhibit, right? The first kind of memorialization of this women's professional league. Um, and, and then it's a whole flashback for her. Like the whole movie is a flashback inside Dottie's mind. And I, and I do think that it's really asking the question, Dottie's asking the question there, which becomes the question of the whole movie. Like, did this even matter? Um, Mm -hmm. and because on some level it really clearly didn't, right. It's a short little window of time, right. They managed just to keep it alive when the men come back from the war for a handful of years, right. Not even a decade. And, and then it, it folds and we don't really know what happened to the women, right. Do they go on to other professional sports? Do they just, you know, become wives and mothers? Do they take up other jobs? Um, and so that question, like, does it, did this matter at all? And in what way did it matter? And then that's actually, like, I think you're totally right, Matt, that that's the question Dottie's asking the whole time, right? that she implicitly says to herself, this doesn't matter, right? I'm just doing this for my sister. I'm just doing, I'm doing this for the country, right? I'm doing it for these other women, but it doesn't matter to me. Um, I could leave it at the drop of a hat. I never really wanted to do it, right? That's the line that she says. And then, of course, there is that sort of sports drama, which is like, it's a really different one. It's a really gendered one, but it's like, you know, challenge, you almost give up, right? You're, you're pushed to the breaking point and you almost give up, except it's not injury or, you know, um, extreme racism or being right. It's, it's your husband comes home and you're like, ah, oh, time to go back to the dairy and get pregnant. And then she has this moment of like, no, it does matter. Right? It matters enough that she gets the Yosemite and turns around, right. And comes back to the world series game. And so there's some moment when she decides it matters to her to play that game and like to see it through. And then she does walk away from it all. So I, I mean, I'm in, I'm interested in what like Penny Marshall had in mind and framing this whole movie through Dottie's flashback and through Dottie's own ambivalences. Um, and if by the end, when they're all together again, like in what ways does Dottie come to realize that this did matter? Not maybe in like, is it because of the like world historical sense of the, the exhibit being shown to her? Like her sense is part of history. Is it reconnecting with these women um, and remembering what it was like to be, like you said, like in community or camaraderie with them? Um, is it remembering that there was this time when she was like the best at something um, that she kind of gave up for a more conventional role as wife and mother. So I'm, I'm super intrigued. I think that, that you're, I mean, I think all you're saying makes sense to me, but those seem to be that like Marshall's doing something with that device. Um, also though, I wanted to hear your thoughts because something that was striking to me in the movie is that all these women get recruited to play in this league because they're all already like exceptionally good ball players who play in hometown leagues, right? And we, we meet Dottie when she's like, wins the game and the, the town knows her and they're going wild. And there's a sense she's already a little bit of a local sports celebrity. Um, and so what is it about the move to this league? I guess the professionalization of this league that opens up all of these intense debates about like women's roles and the place of women, because all these women are already like kind of like semi local stars. I mean, they're, they're already ball players who have like local acclaim. And there's, there seems to be no incongruity between like Dottie is like the, the belle of her town, a dairy worker, a wife, and like the home run hitter in the pinch moment of the game. And um, so what is it about becoming professional ball players that, that changes like all those dynamics. And then suddenly makes this like a referendum on like women's 
ability and women's rights? So I, these are both really important questions and I, and I love them. I, Matt, I'd like to hear a little bit from you about how, how the nostalgia piece fits into this because like uh, it's not just a sports movie trope, but specifically a baseball movie trope where, where things have to be remembered. Like, like these past ball players have to be remembered as part of the story to tell whatever baseball story you want to tell. And so in some ways I feel like Penny Marshall is trying to tell a story, uh, Catherine, as you've noted about this woman who, who is, who is herself trying to figure out why she cares about this game through a particular trope of baseball movies that requires memory. And I'm not totally sure why the memory matters. Um, but it's, it's obviously there in, uh, in response to the, the second question, it seems to me that there's a the di- distinction between Dottie's role at home and Dottie's role on in this new professional baseball league, at least as I understood it, is that they're playing softball in Willamette. And they're not playing baseball. And that small difference, I think, matters to the filmmaker. And I think it's probably born from some innate sexism within our culture that sees a, a real distinct difference between those two games, though they're almost exactly the same, um, is that softball was resigned to women and baseball was a male, um, an, an exclusively male arena that they were invited into and were able to play at, at a high level that they could have been called professionals. Um, and and I don't know why that matters so much to people, but it seems to matter that mm-hmm. that the woman is throwing underhand in Willamette, but Kit throws like on a mound like you would in mm-hmm. a professional arena. Mm-hmm. Some of this revolves around just a little bit of history of um, of Major League Ball itself, which is just to note that like in 1943. Major League Baseball was was really important. It was important to the level of being like almost a public utility. I mean, so this, which is how this movie enters, right? Like, how is the country even going to survive if there if there's the possibility <laughs> that like baseball might not be played? Like, all these characters are aligned with women going into the factories and women uh, going into places of business uh, because the country needed them in order to continue its operation to be in the war fight. Like the country needs baseball in this way that I think from our perspective in 2019 is almost incomprehensible Uh, just because the stature of the game is nowhere near what it was at that point. Uh, And and also then that, that this particular league is a huge deal in its own right. I mean, the, these women were um, in the movie, but in in the true story of it too. Like those those tryouts happened at Wrigley Field. This was Wrigley money that, that was putting this together. I mean, just because they were then put into like you know South Bend sized towns doesn't mean that the league itself wasn't attempting to be substantially bankrolled. And so I think part of part of why it matters was like this was a big deal at the time and i think that's part of what as you're getting to penny marshall is trying to put on the table like this this thing did matter and gina davis's character kind of stands in for us going okay i i see the genre tropes i can play the game but but why and and 
and Marshall is saying, no, this this did have th- this did have consequence. Uh, interestingly, most of the women who uh, appear in that closing epilogue. Uh, when they are touring the exhibit at the Baseball Hall of Fame, are real veterans of the original league. And so I think part of why Marshall lingers in that epilogue is to give those women that sense of historical elevation. Mm -hmm. We're talking about reinserting some very real people into history books. And and so I think Marshall's got a bit of a... um, not just a narrative project, but a historical project going on um, to, to elevate some very particular people. So I want to hear from you, Catherine, as you, I mean, I think we've all recognized that this is a very 1992 type of movie and that there, if we, if this were being made today, it would look different. Um, there are a couple of moments that I think are really lovely. And, um, and I was quite taken with them, but, two in particular. And then I want to hear what parts of the movies like, like kind of were tender and like stuck with you and you would keep around if you were going to remake this movie. Um, and what, and what would you do away with, um, in the mm. making of this movie? Um, so there's when, when the training montage, when they come and try out is awesome. Mm-hmm. It's like incredibly paced. It, it feels like it's West side story. It feels like they had a choreographer come in and, um, and do this very, it is quite elegant as well as being athletic. It was really lovely. I love that scene. And then there's this little tender moment where people are getting placed on teams and getting cut. And there's a woman who's crying as she's walking And And these two characters barely have names in the movie. Um, but they share this moment where one can't read and another person recognizes that. And the coach can't recognize that. And she helps her find her name on a list. Um, I was watching that scene and thinking that I don't think that happens in a more male centered um, sports movie like that. That moment had pathos in a way that I was I was unprepared for, given the genre. Yeah, no, I love I love that movie, uh, that moment, too. I think um, things that definitely like hold up for me still that make I mean, we've talked about a lot of them, I think, but that make it a really interesting and I think unique kind of sports movie um, are actually the Gina Davis character herself. Like I think her ambivalence um, and uncertainty about what she's doing and why she's doing it makes her. a a really fascinating hero of a sports movie. Um, and I would like, if this movie was being remade, I wouldn't want to lose that, that, um, Mm -hmm. and that also that she is, that we, you know, we could maybe deconstruct her desires to go back to the farm and work in the dairy and have a lot of babies as, you know, somehow a kind of false consciousness she's living under. But I, I actually really like and believe that no, she really wants that. And that she's, um, She's not just being duped by like there's the real life, the real glamour would be playing professional ball for a few years. And I and I like that she's that kind of um, she's ambivalent to herself and maybe ambivalent to our own 
sensibilities. And even in a remake, yeah. I'd want to see that. Um, yeah. And, and the, the danger or the temptation of a studio exec coming in saying like Gina Davis should fall in love with Tom Hanks. That's what this yeah. should happen. As and it doesn't happen. I think yes. to its credit, this movie yes. is like stays veers really far from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Apparently that plot exists in like longer takes that got cut out. So like they veer towards it, but then um, saw the error of their ways. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I also agree with you. It's, it's such a funny thing. They must have been stuck between these two different tropes of like, do we, you know, do we have her fall in love? Do they have them fall in love? Because that's an odd, I mean, that's just like, it's clearly baked in and you're like, you can see how it could happen. And then, and then the drama would become this romantic drama. Does she stay with a husband or not? Is the husband, you know, going to turn out to be a total louse? Like you never know when he's, when he comes or back. Or does he like, die in war? Does he or die in war? Like, yeah. There's so many ways they could have cleared up the moral ambiguities of their romance. Um, but then, but also that like, you're like, do we have her, does he turn out to be a nice guy? And like, not a, not a, a total louse. And, and she chooses like this conventional path and that they must've been really torn between those outcomes. But I like the one they picked. Um, I think the things that stood out to me, I mean, the, um, the, it was hard to tell sometimes whether in depicting the kind of overt sexism of the 1940s, the 1990s perspective on that really had a grip on what it wanted to say about it or, or how far it thought we had moved, um, by 1992, like how far, um, and the, uh, you know, the like Rosie O'Donnell's character, Doris, with her, her sort of obviously signaling certain kind of lesbian identities that aren't never really acknowledged or given yeah. voice to, um, I mean, the, the race question, I mean, obviously, oh um, which is, the movie is clearly trying to say like in, in one little moment, right. They meet these, this, these black women who throw a ball back at them. And it's the movie's nod to saying, this is not the whole story of women in sports or women's in baseball. This is like a white woman's story. Um, I think we couldn't make like, we'd have to be, there'd be more, I hope in 2019, like even if you wanted to make this, the same movie about these particular historical women, maybe more foregrounding of how race played a role. I think also maybe class right There's mm-hmm. You were talking about, you know, women going into work and, um, what it would mean, you know, what it means to ask women to step up to this kind of labor and then potentially take it away from them when the men come back. And th- there's a whole little speech about that amongst men about um, how this works. But but that was also really only for a certain kind of middle class or upper middle class women, right? Like as Dottie and Kit show us, like they had always been working and they were always going to be working, right? They didn't take the war effort to tell them they needed to get in the dairy, Um that their like labor on the farm and their work was that had been part of their lives and their mother's lives and their grandmother's lives and was going to be part of their lives regardless of um, the war effort. And so the more maybe sensitivity to the, that the um, but women had been performing lots of labor, not just like invisible labor in the home, but actual labor right in their communities and, and broader that would um, that maybe you'd want to see more attention to that. I, I appreciate a, a lot of that, and especially you bringing out some of the questions around uh, sexuality that come out of this film, you know, particularly, I think, through Rosie O'Donnell's character. And it's hard to separate that from uh, her public persona as it develops over the, the ensuing decades. 
Um, this, this movie contributes a lot to subsequent conversations in film studies, particularly queer film studies around kind of queer lens in cinema, and especially with queer lenses on sports movies, I think for relatively obvious reasons. But I, I don't want to let that conversation go without um, pointing you all to an essay by Brittany de la Cretas, which came out last year, uh, that we can point a link to, which um, goes through and details the queer history of the, the league itself that gets lar- almost entirely erased from this film. So the, the, yeah. the, the, the historical league has all kinds of resonance um, with, uh, uh, with queer history and became its own kind of, uh, quote-unquote, safe place for an, a, number of, uh, a number of lesbian ballplayers uh, that this film has has no interest in telling that particular story. And so it's, it's interesting that the movie both makes some interesting critical advances around queer theory, but also has this erasure in it. And I, I don't want us to not include that moment. Yeah. I think similarly, there's, there's a, the way that motherhood is depicted here is actually pretty um, remarkable though. I wish it went a little further, which is to, to talk about how the, the traditional roles and expectations of motherhood, not just in the 1940s, but also in 1992 still hold, especially with women who are moving into the professional athletics. And we just, I just, I don't know if you saw this not a couple of weeks ago, there's a woman professional soccer player who plays on the U S national team, who's somewhere in her, like uh, at the end of her first trimester, early in the second trimester, who was still practicing with the national team. And there was like a massive outcry about like what this person is doing to the to this child and and how she could endanger the child. And this and this person is like, what? And would had to go on like ESPN, these different places to have a number of different conversations about um, what it's like to be a professional athlete who is also pregnant and who is also a mother and has to and the the types of expectations that are placed on these women that the at at who have chosen this particular life that um, that are never placed on the male athletes um, that are sort of revered in our culture. And I thought that this movie had had an opportunity to say something about that, but mainly just played it for comic effect and um, without recognizing that there's, there's something um, in the same way that within the church, women's experiences around questions of, um, of contemplation, meditation, um, the sort of the the life of um, of serenity, is um, never makes room for mothers who work who um, who don't get like three hours a day to pray the hours, um, who um, and then are expected to you know like go have quiet time or something like that. Um, so I think there's there's some there's some meat left on that bone that in 2019 I think could be really really interesting. All right, before we move on, I want to remind you that support for Sunday Morning Matinee comes from Emory University's Candler School of Theology in Atlanta. Build critical skills for Christian ministry with a two-year Master of Religious Leadership. Choose from six areas of specialization, including youth ministry, worship and music, pastoral care, mission evangelism and world Christianity, peace building and conflict transformation, and Wesleyan leadership and heritage. Details are at candler.emory.edu slash Sunday morning. We are grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. 
Catherine Reckless, who we are happy to have on the show, has just written about Russian Doll, which Matt talked about on last uh, on our last episode. Matt and Catherine are working in the same arena on this one. I encourage you to go and read her stuff. I always enjoy Catherine's stuff. I think it uh, it's always so smart and always has an angle that I haven't thought about. So if you're looking for good media criticism from a theological lens, Catherine is great at it. Also, if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday morning night listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're looking at the lectionary passages for April 7th, the fifth Sunday in Lent. We've got Isaiah's famous proclamation of doing a new thing, Psalm 126, where a weeping turns to dancing, well, Paul's resume in Philippians and the woman with the costly nard in John. Catherine, as you look through these texts, what is jumping out to you as a possible intersection with a league of their own? Well, you know, as I said last time, because I don't have to regularly preach, I really feel like out of my league in this part of the show. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, what really jumped out to me immediately is the, um, the passage from the Philippians. And, and largely actually because of how it ends, because maybe just because I've just heard too many sermons that take that last part, you know, running the good race to completion and use it, right? The, the metaphor that jumping to mind, often a sports metaphor, right? The athletic, athletic perseverance, mm-hmm. um, running, running the good race, running the race to completion. And I was thinking about, um, maybe picking up on some of our conversations about Dottie and about the league itself and the point of the league. Right? What does it mean to think about that metaphor of, success and completion, perseverance, um, perseverance in something towards a prize. Um, when something like right, this movie is, is actually asking, you know, what, what is the prize? Right? The prize is not the traditional in the league of their own, the movie, right? The prize is not the traditional model of success with right? this. Um, there's, the success is curtailed. It's historically limited. We don't really know. I mean, in terms of the movie, what goes kind of what it, it means to these women but that's the open question of the movie, and I thought, what? A, how would right, how would that tradi- that sort of way that that Philippians passage becomes a a meditation on athletic perseverance as a metaphor for the spiritual life? How would it? How does it shift if we don't think about that perseverance towards a traditional sort of fame, glory, success, completion, um, but something more like Dottie's ambivalent position? Yeah, I was thinking about that text too, um, because in so, because of some of the kind of glutton for punishment language that Paul uses uh, as he's advancing that the you know I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. There's a like there's a kind of woe is me. I have put up with all of this crap and I do it gladly because of Jesus thing that I I, I mean I. I that, that I that I wrestle with, um, a because kind of glutton for punishment language in Christianity especially gets gets deployed by the wrong people <laughs> to mess with other people, and and also because it it feels so personalized and individualistic to me, and I I, I am I, I am trying to push this text through the lens of some of. Paul's other writings towards a more, towards a more um, communal, um, joined place where uh, the, the we do this work together. 
um, and we don't have to when we, we care for one another in a way that has empathy that I think is part of what is at play in this film a bit. So to me, this is all kind of, this is Paul meditating on whether or not there's crying in baseball. I mean, the whole mm-hmm. speech from Tom Hanks there is about like, you know, we put up with bullshit so that we can get on this, so that we can win this game. You know, Roger Hornsby was my manager. He called me a talking pile of pig shit. And that was when my parents drove all the way down from Michigan to see me play. And did I cry? That feels like, Paul's stuff to me here and then I <laughs> but but then I feel like Penny Marshall is pushing and challenging I mean that moment uh, where um, the the players the, the the one player helps the other one to read feels like empathy and it feels like um, bearing one another's burdens it feels like um, being the body together in a way that is more expansive so that's me wrestling with this Philippians yeah. text, which I have never fully mm-hmm. adored. So I want to just piggyback on something that you both just said, which is the interesting thing that I think Penny Marshall is doing with that, with that is there crying in baseball scene too, is to say like, of course there's always been crying in sports, right? Like it is a very emotional thing and the masculine world wants to say, uh, no, there's not, but, if, but how many, how many athletes are praised after Mar- their March Madness basketball game when their when their team gets sent home and you know they're crying in the locker room and everyone sort of pats them on the back and saying, "Man, they really wanted it." Um, and and so I think there's there's even in this most recent tournament, like a coach got really mad at a at a at a player and lunged at him. Michigan State's Tom Izzo like lunged at one of his freshmen, an 18 year old, and. I think rightfully so the internet stood up and said like, Hey, you know, knock it off, man. Cause you know, cause these are kids, but also because like you shouldn't talk to people that way. <laughs> um, and I think similarly with someone like Paul, there are times where I'm like, Hey man, you're, you're not rubbish. You don't have to say that. Right. Exactly. You know, like the theater of it all doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't accomplish what you think it does. Um, I'm, I'm, I agree with you, despite the fact that yeah. you just took a baseball movie and made it about basketball. And I object to that <laughs> in principle. I support that. I'm in full support of that. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. I'm glad that I have someone on my team. Um, so the thing that I was thinking about was, is the John passage because, um, it's a, it's such a visceral passage and John does actually a really good job of thinking not just about sort of sight and sound, but also about the other senses. And this passage is happening right after Lazarus is raised. And, um, and the Lazarus passage itself is, is very visible, visceral where the, the smell of Lazarus's rotting corpse is noted and that people are like, wow, it stinks. Um, and I, I think John is doing something interesting where he, is the, the gospel is is contrasting the um, the smell of Lazarus in the tomb with this costly nard that has just been brought and showered and, and placed upon Jesus. Um, now, part of the reason why I think that's so interesting is because I find baseball to be very sort of um, uh, uh, sensual in its own way, which is you go someplace and the ballpark smells like popcorn and peanuts and there's like it's grass and dirt. It, it, and it seems more than some other sports to have like leather and, um, and pine tar and wood, like all of these very sort of elemental things are present when you're playing baseball. And I think if I'm, 
going to make some theory. I think that's part of why the nostalgia holds so much is because it's, it's kind of Proustian almost, right? Like there's, there's this moment you smell like this, the, 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 the resin, or you smell like the, the oil that you would put on a leather mitt. And suddenly you're transported back to when you cared about that, or back to the time that you like, you know, threw a ball with your, (laughs) with your parent. And, and so I'm just, I'm thinking about that especially in light of the fact that the John passage is now having Jesus move towards the cross. And this week I've been thinking a lot about like, did Jesus continue to smell that nard as he moved through the passion week Hmm. as a way to remember the anointing that this woman had given the faithfulness of this woman, the, the, the empathy and the care that she provided as a reminder of the mission of Christ going forward, that that the sensory reminder that he continues to return to, though the text never says he does, is the costly nard that had been spread upon him, that this perfume would have lasted even as he moved throughout the Passion. And so I'm trying to weave those things in my head right now, which is the visceralness of, of, of baseball in particular, how it sort of conjures in us a nostalgia, but also how this woman's action is is directing Christ's memory in the midst of passion. It is interesting to think about the, you know, the, the putting on the, 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 the debate about whether the, the usefulness of that nard in that passage, um, which I think connects to things we've been talking about, right? Whether or not this question of the doing of something outside of its usefulness, the doing of something um, in, in sports terms or in baseball terms, right? In Tom Hanks's terms for the love of it, right? Um, that the baseball is the love um, and the the doing it without there being a necessary end or point, which is I think Dottie what Dottie comes to realize about herself, right? She mm-hmm. she's not doing this to change her life structure or to escape to a new a new life. Um, she's doing it for something like the love of the game. And there's some some echo of that in the the debate about the uselessness of anointing Jesus's body with this expensive expensive perfume. Yeah, the intrinsic goodness of gratitude and of of love right is does does love need a specific effect or intention in order for us to value it right and and i think similarly if you're talking about sport there i think there's a helpful question to to that as well which is like sometimes it's not just that it's fun it's that we are trying to do something that we love and one of the uses of that nard would have been to um, to anoint his body after its burial uh, and to preserve the body in the tomb. Um, it's one of the reasons the women bring those those anointing spices on what becomes Easter Sunday. So it's kind of an interesting question of like, what what is that anointing for? Is it for the living or for the dead? In a way that I th- I think kind of shows up in the in the epilogue of this film. Of, of Marshall kind of saying, look, this, uh, this, this isn't just dead history. It's, it, it, it's real for these very real people, uh, who are, uh, now getting a chance to, um, to be a, a living part and living witnesses to something, um, that, that wasn't just a, a random chapter in Wikipedia, but is something that is alive and that, and, and, and has, and has real consequence. I think that's a good place to move on 
This means uh, as we move on to the third part of our show that we say goodbye to Catherine. Catherine, thanks for coming and being a part of this conversation. Um, we always enjoy uh, your perspective and what you bring to this. Thanks. Yeah, truly my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude? So uh, my seven-year-old and I are reading uh, uh, some books by an author named Peter Brown the, in the series called The Wild Robot. Are you familiar with The Wild Robot, Adam? No. Uh-huh. All right. This is, this is my new favorite thing. So The Wild Robot is about a, a Rosam-class robot, Unit 7134. Uh, who is the lone robot to survive a cargo shipwreck. And she goes by the name Roz, and she washes up on a remote island. And the question is, can Roz survive on her own? And can she find her way among the coterie of animals who are already living there? So this has a lot of genre tropes with kind of classic children's literature about where people get stranded, like Hatchet or Abel's Island, or like Swiss Family Robinson even kind of stuff. Um, but it also has comes through this amazing moral lens. Like Roz has no moral code; she is a robot. And so, what moral code does the natural world teach her? And if you were in a freshman intro philosophy class, um, you would like this book and kind of Rousseau's thinking around innocence and children in the natural world are just yeah. just made for that freshman final paper. But it's also just kind of profoundly moving. It's very modern. There's there's world building that's happening here uh, in very subtle, tender ways about kind of what is this? What is the broader world in which this is all taking place? Um, and it's incredibly deftly and gently and lovingly done. And and I I think this may be the best kind of quote unquote children's book that I have read since I was reading Harry Potter. And hmm. I, I don't I don't say that lightly. I am in love with this thing. Um, there are two of them. We are halfway through the sequel. I won't even tell you the name of it because that would already have spoilers involved. And I'm trying very hard not to give you anything that doesn't happen in the first like five chapters of the book. But anyway, oh yeah, Peter Brown. This sounds yeah. up my alley. I'm, I'm in. I'm yeah, in. I, I don't. I don't really think you need a seven year old to read and enjoy this. Um, I, I think. I think this is for anyone. But it is. Well, it is wonderful stuff. So I've got a six year old, so that'll help. Um, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, here's my paper title, Matt. Um, Emil and Roz. Mm-hmm. Uh, colon. Colon. <laughs> T- toward a theory of the natural, uh, of a natural ethic. Right. How about that? Yeah, that's, it's exactly right. It's exactly mm-hmm. right. It's, it writes itself. All right, Adam, what are you writing your uh, freshman philosophy final paper on right now? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm writing it on Outlander. Have you watched any Outlander? It's I on Stars. Um, so I was really into Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. Uh, did you watch that? Yeah, I love that show. Um, so Ron Moore is great. I think he's he's got a lot. He's a really ingenious storyteller, and I like the way that he tells stories. And Outlander is about a um, about an English woman who, through magic, um, gets transported back to um, 17th or yeah, 18th century Scotland, at which point she has to sort of fend for herself and figure out how to operate as someone who is coming from post-war England into um, like colonial Scotland, actually. Um, 
it's a re- it's a really interesting show. It has a lot to offer. Some of the performances are really good. The political intrigue is really fascinating. It puts some like major steps in the wrong direction. Yeah. <laughs> there are times where the decisions, the storytelling decisions and the filmmaking decisions seem to be so utterly stupid that I'm surprised how smart it is at other times. Um, and it's one of those shows, and I don't know if you have any of these in your life right now, where you are kind of marveling at how smart it is in one arena and then be like, wait, how did we get to this place? Cause this is so dumb. Or this is like over the top in a way that is utterly unnecessary and gratuitous. Um, I'm going to keep watching this show, but it continues to help me think about how broad and dangerous all of our decisions are. And this is especially acute to me as I start in a new place, which is like, I'm, I am very much in danger of putting feet wrong. In fact, I'm about to go have a conversation with someone. I'm three days in and I'm like, was that the wrong decision? Should I have done that differently? Um, and I just quite kind of like the idea of sitting with a story and hanging with the storyteller, even if the story is not perfect, even if the story is not fully fleshed out, even if it puts, um, uh, puts a foot wrong pretty regularly and thinking about how, what does it mean to be a gracious watcher of um, TV and just give grace, give grace, give grace. And because in some ways I feel like I, as I move into this role, I want the same. And so I'm, I'm playing around with this idea of grace in my own media consumption uh, in a way that I haven't in a long, long time. Cool. I like that a lot. Uh, I like, Ron Moore's work. I mean, he's an old Star Trek guy, so of course I'm biased. Um, but <laughs> it's good. It's a really good show. And but, but like, and like it, Battlestar is the definition of that, right? Where like it, it's great, and then some days it's not, and you stick with. You know, the reward is great if you can stick with it, but it does require some some patience at moments and some recognition that like you know, great storytelling is still in a serialized t- television format going to have some. Uh, some man days. Yeah. And it's not boring. It's, it's just like he went for it. And I was like, well, didn't, didn't hit the mark, <laughs> but at least he like, there's courage and there's boldness in the storytelling. And, right. and I can admire that. Yeah. Welcome to the act of preaching every Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That about wraps it up for today. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We love your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, The Sud Buckets. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Ben.